It's time for Tim. The Tim Weisberg Show on 1420 WBSM and streaming live on WBSM.com and the WBSM app. Talk to Tim now at 508-996-0500 or send him a message through the WBSM app. And now, WBSM's big gun, Tim Weisberg. And welcome back. Third and final hour on Wednesday. That means it is time for Midweek with the Mayor. New Bedford Mayor John Mitchell is here, and he's going to be taking your phone calls. Now, how long have you been mayor now of the city of New Bedford? It's been a while. It's been a while, Tim. How many years have you been coming into the studio? Yeah. You've probably never I'm, seen this dinosaur before. Yeah, yeah I'm glad you raised it because that was... I've been. You probably caught me staring at this, <laughs> the new phone here, the new old phone. This has got to be well. It's push button, so it's not dial. It's not rotary uh, dial. No, yeah. thankfully. So, um, it. Yeah, did you break this out of a closet somewhere? Where did this? Yes, we yeah. uh, the uh, our our regular phone system just kind of died out on us on Monday. Inexplicably, we still don't know what happened. It was the, the system the, or the phones themselves. The, the unit so it's all it's all run by something over in the other room there. This is just like a, <laughs> a by, peripheral. By the man cord. behind the curtain is that the? Well, we always yeah. say that we're heating up the phone lines, and I guess we heated them up so much they melted. It's starting to smoke. Huh? So we. I'm we looking at this. I wish, this the, I wish the the listening audience could behold what I see right now, which is this phone. What's the brand? Uh, Get Getner. I'm reading Gettner. it upside down. Um, uh, so it's, yeah, is that is that a company that exists anymore? I think so. Does it? But that 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 unit is probably from the the mid 90s. It, it, it looks, has that look it, to it. It looks 90ish. You know, you could, you know, bring this over to like Antiques Roadshow and maybe get something <laughs> for it. I, I, don't, I don't know, but yeah, it's well okay. That's it's very stylish, if nothing else. That counts for something, even though even though you can't see it over the radio. It's uh, tr- people should just trust me. It's um, it's it, it makes a statement. If it didn't have secret codes on it, I'd I'd put a photo of it up on social media. I don't even know what that code is, but I would have put it up on social media for people to see. But this is, this is what our engineer will do for to make sure that we can still take phone calls with you here from the from the I, listening audience. I appreciate that. And that. and tomorrow because we have City Council President Linda Morad in tomorrow yeah. taking calls from the audience too. So I so said I got to have some mechanisms. So to we do need that. So we need phones. The show must go on. So speaking of ancient things. <laughs> Not as ancient as this phone, but the Zyterian celebrated its 100th anniversary this, this past weekend. Uh, yeah, actually, Sunday made it 100 years since its opening. And you think about uh, just how, all it's been through. There, was, there were once 17 theaters. At the time it opened, there were 17 theaters in the city. And it's really the only active one. There's some that are still standing, like the Orpheum and the... Uh, the um, you know the two on the Ave, but uh, it's been it's been uh, it's been a big a long run. Uh, when it opened, of course, you know, we were coming out of a world war and a, and a pandemic, and uh, vaudeville was all the rage. Radio was just starting to come in. Never mind TV; that was still a couple of decades away. Um, so this is so it was a big form of uh, of entertainment uh, in the city, and it's stood the test of time including urban renewal in the in the late 60s and early 70s so um and thanks to folks like sarah delano mayor bullard 
and a whole bunch of others, they were able to preserve it in the 80s, and I don't do justice to it because there are a lot of people involved in it. But uh, And now the Zyterium board's em- embarking on a on a really big expansion, uh, expansion, an upgrade that's long overdue, about 30 years, 40 years overdue. So uh, they're about to start on a project that's uh, going to cost about $31 million, and they've raised both private um, and public money. We've been putting in uh, money into the facility, as, as you know. So uh, it's going to look even better with a nice marquee outside, new seats, um, new features, and um, all in time for, you know, they'll, they'll have to shut down at some point but for, for a period. But uh, it's all good. It's all real good, and so they deserve a lot of credit. And it's uh, it's a big. Zyterian's a big deal in the city. It's a performing arts center that draws a whole lot of folks in, and for greater entertainment, but also it helps the economy. It's just a great yeah, anchor asset in uh, in our city. I'm actually working on a story, in, and uh, it's just other things have come up, so I haven't been able to finish it. But it's on the first show that ever was at the Zyterian. Oh, the Troubles of 1922. Which it was. That's it, what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And you probably have seen George Jessel like on TV, like uh, late seventies, early eighties. He was a comedian who was known. Maybe it was just late seventies. He might have died before then, but he had that bit where he'd be like, "Hello, Mama," and he would like talk on the phone. Oh yeah. yeah. So he was yeah. actually the star of the first show. Really? Like the vaudevillian. Yeah. He wrote huh. and created the show, and there were a couple of songs, pretty famous songs that came out of that show, famous for the time. And so I found like YouTube videos of those. I'm putting it all together to kind of just give people an oh, idea of what that, that first. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I'm a geek for all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, I haven't heard that that story at all. I think people would really like it, like to hear it. And people will say, "You're the only person that knows who George Jessel is." Me and Taylor Cormier, we're the only ones. Well, you'll be resurrecting his status <laughs> as a leading vaudeville actor and writer. So that's there's there's a lot to be said for that. So the the news came out also recently that the, you had mentioned the Orpheum Theater. Now people might not realize this, but in those days there were two different circuits, and so there was the Orpheum circuit where the acts would only play Orpheum theaters, and then there was the other circuit. I forget the name of that one. Right. Um, Schubert, I think it was. So. The um, Orpheum has been put back on the market for a very reasonable price, but it needs a lot of work. Has, would What's the it being listed at? Five hundred ninety-nine thousand, I believe. Yeah. Would Would the city could, have any it interest? Could, it in, could be yours, Tim. I would love it. I wish, but I uh, I don't even have you know a tenth of that. But would the city have any interest in purchasing that building and trying to restore it? Um, you'd have to have if we're going to put taxpayer dollars into the Orpheum, we'd have to have a pathway to not just reconstructing it but also to have a um a pathway to actually operating it without some massive uh, public subsidy you know we do subsidize the operation of the z uh, it works out to be about $150,000 I, I think maybe up to $200,000 a year and uh and that's pretty typical it's not actually that arrangement is pretty typical of what Cities of our size and a little bit bigger have uh, with their performing arts centers, publicly owned building, but there's a not-for-profit entity that runs the thing as a performing arts center and the city chips in something, right? So that's uh, – in order to do that for a second theater, we'd have to – you'd have to understand how that would – how that would work and whether that, that would be viable. It's a – the Orpheum building is a bigger building than the Z. It's a bigger theater. Um, uh, arguably, it's uh, it's a 
at least in its original design, a, a, a more ornate building inside, if not like more attractive. I don't know if you've ever been in there, but it is a pretty stunning and uh, has a very stunning interior. But to to you're talking, I don't know, I mean, tens of millions of dollars just to get the thing up and running. And then, okay, well, once that happens, are you going to just, you know, Will there be? Will it be viable as a going concern? And uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm, op- I'm open to hearing it from folks. You know, we'd like to find some way to preserve that building. It's just, um, it's it's a big building, and we, you know, I have to just be mindful of taxpayer commitments to to such things, especially if they're not, you know, they're not really viable on their own. Right. The other question comes: Can the city handle two two theaters, two performing arts centers, and what would the acts be, and how would you determine, you know, which which theater the acts would go to, and all of those kind of things? Right. You know, the neighborhood there is very different because, uh, well, since since Route 18 JFK was was built, so that used to be a, a that used to be a commercial district. It really isn't a commercial district anymore. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't other, um, you know, there's restaurants not too far away. You know, Bank of America is just on down the other end of the block. So it's not like it's bereft of businesses, but it's not what it once was. And so, you know, when you, when you look at these things, these days performing arts centers and similar public venues, arenas and such are built in places where, they will lead to further um, economic development. That's usually in the urban core in the downtown where, you know, there is it is existing network of shops and restaurants and other institutions. And so, you know, it's a little harder to pull that off, um, you know, there. What, what Urban Renewal did, among other things, was knock down pretty much everything else that was in that neighborhood, except for the, you know, with the exception of the Orpheum, which, you know, I don't know if this is urban legend or, or what, but it, the the Orpheum, the Orpheum was a big building to knock down, a really big building, and so it was left in place, and it really wasn't in the way of the the highway. But that's that's, but that's just the reality we face. So if somebody wants, if somebody's got an idea about how we could put, how there would be a viable pathway, I'd be open to hearing them from them. Uh, speaking of, of older buildings, uh, Barry has a story today at WBSM.com and, and the app looking a little bit at the history of the um, the Royal Crown building that uh, that was part of the that was involved in the fire. And I think he said that that goes back to 1916. So we're looking at a building 1907. So it's so yeah. over 100 years old then. So this is a building that, um, you, you know, I, I, I don't there's nothing really left of it anymore, unfortunately. No, no. So, but the people who were displaced in that fire, it seems like they're starting to to be able to put into place, helping them out and get getting them situated into a more permanent well, situation. Well, we we've taken a number of steps to make that happen. So, a number of agencies, working private agencies, working with the city, um, were able to get uh, the people displaced by the fire. And I forget the number; there have been varying numbers, of, but it's it's more than two, more than twenty, more than two dozen. And they've got uh, right after the fire, they they got themselves um, situated at area hotels and motels, and that was all good with food vouchers and such. Um, the Red Cross, Rise Up for Homes, Seven Hills, uh, among other the homeless service provider network, they did it. They did a great job springing into action, um, but uh, we need they needed some stability longer term, and so we've been working with those same groups primarily 
the homeless service provider network, uh, which runs the Rise Up for Homes fundraising site to get uh, to get them resituated into more permanent housing. So we've been working on that. Um, I think it's going relatively well. We'd like to see more money raised. Um, so if people are interested in helping out those folks, you can go to the Rise Up for Homes website and you can donate right on the website. And if you don't want to donate on the website, there's an address there you can send a check to. Um, it's a worthy cause uh, for you know people who are uh, unfortunately displaced by a horrible fire. Right? There's lots of uh, that. That fire was pretty devastating. It's uh, and as we've as we've discussed, I mean, we've displaced all those people. Uh, it burnt down a like an architecturally distinct um, building, and but most of all, there were two people who lost their lives in the in the matter, and and uh, uh, so it's a big deal. And our fire department has looked into it, has, has been looking into it to uh, understand uh, what happened. Uh, our fire department, the state fire marshals, uh, are doing the investigation. We know that in general that it was accidentally uh, set, uh, was sparked accidentally through a cook, what appears to be a cooking mishap. But um, there were no open fire code violations. There had been some complaints, and the fire department had responded to them. But, you know, it's... it's um, it just goes to show, and it's just an unfortunate set of circumstances. They they, have, they were about to install a sprinkler system that had been permitted uh, just a week before, so they were all ready to to, to put that in. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't know whether that would have made a difference, but it, it might have. Could uh, very well. So, yeah. so you know, it, I think it does underscore. Unfortunately, it's it's just a, it's an unfortunate reminder that. You know, buildings can burn down, and it's like, of course, and you might say, well, of course they can, but it it happens so quickly. Uh, it, it, you wonder, like, well, you know, if there was a fire, somebody you want to, one might wonder, well, if, if there were a fire in my building, in my house, my apartment, I would just, I'd know how to get out of here, and like, what's 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 the big deal? The big deal is it's 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 easier said than done, and um, and that's why. The fire department has to do inspections. That's why the fire department has to find people sometimes for, for not, uh, for having issues, uh, code issues, violations at their apartments. I know some landlords don't like to hear that, but there's a reason why why that's done. And um, the fire departments, you know, the fire department has beefed up inspections in the last few years, and we've seen we've seen a decline in the last three years in structure fires overall in the city. It's just that the ones that we've had have been very devastating. A lot of them have been right on the avenue within a couple of blocks of where that one just happened. So I just it, – it, it's, it's, it's hard and as the fire department works and as effective as they are responding to fires, I think people do need to know, take the advice they get seriously uh, about, you know, things as simple as, you know – being careful around cooking and being careful uh, about lighted cigarettes. And we have so many fires that are set just by someone smoking in the house and, you know, leaving the, you know, the cigarette in a place where it could catch on, on fire, like on a nightstand. We have those those fires. And so uh, people need to take that seriously. And in the event of a fire, especially in an apartment building, you got to have a plan in place and to, to, to get on out. Uh, because it does spread really, really fast. Sometimes, as we experienced with the fire last week, just too fast for firefighters to catch up to. The firefighters, actually, the fire department was notified not by a 911 call, but by 
by a uh, by the smoke alarm. And so there were working smoke alarms there, but and they were set off even before anybody called. And the fire department got there really fast, and still uh, the fire was just moving too rapidly through the building. So that's um, it's just uh, I can't underscore enough that people you, you you gotta take the possibility of a fire in your your building seriously. And, and, and just going back to the need of the folks uh, who were displaced by it, I think a lot of folks see, oh, it's a rooming house. So, you know, it was probably furnished and they probably didn't have a lot of their own personal effects in there. But I'm sure many of these folks had everything that they owned in those rooms. Oh, they had everything they owned. Yeah, no, this, they, they lost, they lost uh, in most instances, my understanding is they lost pretty much everything. So, so yeah, I encourage people to rise up for homes. I really appreciate the effort on their part and the HSPN and the, inter, the Interchurch Council for stepping up and uh, just like if you feel moved to donate that's the place to do it all right why don't we take our first break if you have any questions for mayor mitchell you can call in 508-996-0500 or you can send us an app chat message or you can send us an open line voicemail message both through the wbsm app we'll be back in just a few moments and welcome back it is midweek with the mayor new bedford mayor john mitchell is here with us and uh, we will take your phone calls at 508-996-0500 uh, of hey, course, Tim, not to interrupt you, but yes. you know, I'm looking at this, you know, 1990s era phone. <laughs> You're fascinated I, by the phone. I, I am, you know, and of course it has all the 99 numbers here, uh, like 99, yeah. But I'm wondering, like, how do you know when someone's calling in? Which which light lights up? So the the light up here will light up oh, if okay. we get a call. All right, so you've mastered this. Um, yeah, then I got to put them on hold. Well, I don't. I wouldn't say master because I hung up on a couple people this morning <laughs> because I forgot you have to have the handset off in order to put somebody on hold. Oh, I was wondering about that too. Why is the why is the phone off the hook? So that's it's, it's funny because this is how it had to be for sure years. If you keep the phone off, people can call in. You've got the phone off the hook. Yes, they still can. All right. It was it was like this for years. We always had it off the hook, and then the new phone doesn't have to do it. But when we first got the new phone, all the hosts would take that off the hook, and we'd have to tell them that's you don't right. have to do that anymore. And then I forgot. And I'm sure, all these I was details are fascinating people. to the listening. Audience, oh, they they so. they they just think I'm coming up with an excuse for not being able to do my job correctly. <laughs> I can I can attest that to all the listeners out there that Tim is doing his best with this old technology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we have a Wareham line on there. That's how oh, yeah. long ago oh, it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, because that. it used to be a long distance call for people and all oh, this stuff yeah, way yeah. back in the day. Yeah, I, and you you know what else you don't see? Any area codes. It was before you had to type the area code yeah. into the phone. Holly's like, what are you talking about? You always had to put oh, a, yeah. a, an area code in. Back in my day, yeah. The, um, <laughs> so tonight on South Coast Tonight, uh, Josh Amaral will be on with Marcus and Chris. Uh, they're going to be talking about the city's comprehensive housing plan, which I wanted to ask you, what has been the reaction that you've heard from folks since it came out from both, you know, the citizens and from the potential developers? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's been really positive. I caught some of Josh's show on, um, uh, with you on Friday, I think it was a mm-hmm. Friday or Thursday. Friday, Friday morning. Yeah. And then, uh, he's going to be on, uh, tonight again, which is, which is good. And, and, you know, I, I just, as he said, what, you know, my administration is trying to do is to tackle the problem to the greatest extent we can um, and do it in a way, uh, do it, do it thoughtfully, right? Do it based on the input of the public, do it based on the input of developers who actually have to build the housing and do it on uh, in light of our experience with uh, managing a number of housing programs in the city. Um, and so I think it's a good plan. I encourage everybody. It's on the city's website. And if, if you haven't read through it, just you can find it there. 
and take a look at it. I'd love to get people's feedback on it. But what we're trying to do is there are really two big points. One is that it's a at once a national it's a, it's it's a problem at every level um it's a national problem much of the the high expense of housing both for purchasers as well as renters is a matter of uh, it's just more expensive to build housing and and refurbish housing and higher interest rates, of course, right? A number of um, the number of issues that are not unique, number of challenges that are not unique to the New Bedford area. There is also a regional dimension to this that has been like out there for a long time, but really hasn't been talked about in a big way. Which is in Greater New Bedford, right? We have our own sort of regional economy, the city and the surrounding towns all together, and the reality is that there are very few rental units collectively in our suburbs. The city picks up, a, frankly, a disproportionate amount of this has to has to support a disproportional amount of the uh, of the the need in the region, right? The need for for housing for those who are who are, are having trouble affording it, all that, right? And it's then and. and that is a responsibility that we have embraced and will continue to embrace. But the point that the housing plan attempts to make is that that shouldn't be left entirely to New Bedford. The reality is that uh, the city's uh, 30% of the renters in the city have some form of subsidy, whether it's a voucher or whether it's a subsidy associated with the uh, apartment they live in. Um, that's that's fixed by the developer or in the case of the housing authority by by the housing authority so we have that and there's barely any of that in the suburbs none of the suburbs comply with chapter 40b which is a state law that says that if you don't have if temp if you don't have at least 10 percent of your housing units as um that are uh income restricted right you have to have a certain amount of below a certain threshold of income to live there. Uh, if you're not up to 10%, then developers can come in and uh, without any kind of zoning restrictions, uh, can override local zoning restrictions and build that kind of housing. So uh, our suburbs have complied with that in various degree, but none of them have hit the, th- the 10% threshold. So, you know, what's clear is that you know, New Bedford's New Bedford is having to pick up more than its share, right? And we have uh, a city that is roughly, depending on where you draw the line around Greater New Bedford, roughly fifty percent of the population. We have about forty percent of the population in in the region. Yet we have about eighty percent of the high need students in the school and uh, uh, high need students, public school students in the region, right? Uh, we have. If we think, and it's, there isn't good data on this, but it's probably close to about 90% of the rental units in, in the region. So you'd expect center cities to have more of that density, right? But it's just it, there has not been a conversation about the mutual obligations of the city on the one hand and the towns on the other hand with respect to housing, and we hope to have that conversation. The other thing, the other big dimension of the the plan is to do all that's that we can to increase the supply of housing and in the city, but also in the suburbs. But as far as the city goes, uh, you know, we want to push 
um, we want to remove barriers to construction, whether they're in, in zoning or permitting or whatever they are. We want to make sure we're removing them. We want to make sure that we're taking advantage of state subsidies that um, facilitate the construction of housing. We're doing that. We're building. We have about 250 units in the pipeline. We've announced about specifically about 150 that received ARPA funding. So there's there's stuff getting built. Uh, we'd like to see more built still, and that's why we're trying to put these policies in, in place. Um, and we've done some. We're going to be doing some reorganizing in city government to, to ensure that that's working better. Um, there is all. We also want to promote home ownership. So we're uh, we think that especially in our tenement neighborhoods, having a higher level of home ownership can be very useful in stabilizing those neighborhoods of owners as they once did when those how that housing was built and for decades thereafter, if having arrangements where an owner lives on say on the first floor as it typically was the case and you know relatives or whoever friends on the other two floors that that actually leads to to more stable neighborhoods and so we've seen some of our tenement neighborhoods become less stable because of the uh, the prevalence of absentee ownership that's that's something that we want to address and then you know there's the whole the whole questions uh, set of questions around homelessness and so we're, we're trying to get that uh, as well both by uh, pushing more resources in that direction but also refining our practices around homelessness we do we the city along with the homeless service provider network of social service agencies do a very good job responding and we've gotten great to homelessness and we think we've gotten some great feedback over the years about that but we also think there's area for improvement we want to get better at that as well so it's so the plan the plan is comprehensive more comprehensive than what i'm summarizing right now but i think that's the gist of it it's it's have a regional approach and then do everything we can to increase housing supply and as you said, it's all available on the city's website for people to read through. It's easy to read. There's charts and graphs to help you kind of better understand. But I want to kind of segue into that then. The city did just receive $2 million to help with homelessness. Yep. How How is that money going to be utilized to solve that problem? Yeah, a lot of that money will be pushed out to the service providers, right, whether they're providers of to help facilitate getting people into housing, whether they're folks who are um, – organizations that deal with substance abuse right? we want to make sure and so it's a combination like it's it's organizations like stepping stone and uh, paca as well as a number of others that deal directly with with that population in the city and, and giving them the tools they need the capacity they need this to do their their job more effectively to ramp, ramp up their efforts that's that's what that money is really going to so it's you know, that was a competitive grant that the city won, and so you know, I want to thank the the work of of um, the folks in the in housing and community development, especially for their their work in putting that together. But uh, two million dollars is not nothing. That'll that'll carry things through for a few years, and it's not to say that's the end of it either. We we as we continue to refine our work and uh, dealing with the problem of homelessness in the city. Um, you know, we've got an opportunity through the use of ARPA funds and other and other sources of of um, uh, other resources to to improve what we do. So that's the it's it's a work in progress, but the the commitment's there now. I don't know if I've seen the report yet for the point in time count for this year. Um, I know sometimes you know it takes a little while for the report to come out after they've done the count. Do you have an idea of you know what the yeah, situation the has point, been? Yeah, uh, it hasn't happened yet this year, but uh, it's. 
it's been fairly steady, right? The, the point in time counts is just, just to remind people, the point in time count is an exercise that we do every year to determine how many homeless people there are in the city. And there are really two broad categories of homeless in the city. There's the folks in shelters, known as the sheltered population, and then there's the folks who are outside, and that's the, that's the unsheltered population. And so, the unsheltered population has been, you know, it's varied over the years, but not greatly. It's rough, give or take 50, right? People are out and it's not, it's not necessarily the same 50 year in and year out. The, the, the problem with the point in time counted is it, it's, it's useful information, but it's just a snapshot on a particular day once, right. once a year and doesn't really get at sort of the ebb and flow of people of, of that population. People come and go. And so we'd like to, I think one area where we could improve is to get a, a, a better handle on, um, you know, who's at risk and why. And so before they end up out on the street and then responding more quickly, uh, once, once that happens. And so the focus, focus isn't entirely on the unsheltered population, but that's, that's going to be a, a, that has to be a priority for obvious reasons. And, and, you know, a lot of the folks who end up in that situation are, you know, have, are dealing with substance abuse, uh, or, uh, and or mental health issues. And so that those, uh, getting the right kind of, um, assistance for, for those, um, for those challenges is, is going to be a, a big part of the equation. Sure. I think we have a phone call there here. Go. Yeah, if I don't, right, that does work, Tim. If I all right, watch this, watch, watch how hard I press the buttons to be able to make it work. Good morning. You are on with Mayor Mitchell. Hello. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call, um, Mayor Mitchell. I have a brief question. Yep. And um, kind of changing the subject a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, it's not. It's kind of a group of us. We were inquiring about the the, um, the treatment plant down the south end. Yep. Okay. Um, we understand that sometimes there's a severe rainstorm and then there's a runoff and the beaches are closed. But it seems a couple of times last year there was no rain and the beaches were closed. And we're just wondering, can you shed some light on what's going on, sir? I don't remember what that happened. There may have been a rainstorm. So I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, so let me tell you the way it works. So thank you. Yeah. So. So we have the reason people wonder like why why do the beaches get closed when there's um, a discharge when there's rain? It's because there may have been a discharge of sewage, untreated sewage, into local waterways. Well, how does that happen? Well, what New Bedford has, like many cities around older cities in the United States, have is a combined sewer and wastewater system. That's how they were built in the years past, where. There, the the stormwater system, um, where the sewer system and wastewater uh, systems were uh, connected up, and if there had been like a like a huge rain, there would be times when the sewage would be pushed out into the into the receiving waters, as the EPA calls them. And right. so we've been spending, we the city over the last thirty years have been under a court order, like many oh. many cities. Well, it's right. it's it's very common. Um, okay. You know, Fall River, uh, Brockton, Boston. I mean, like you name, like just about every older city in the Northeast and the Midwest is under some federal directive to separate out their system. So what that means literally is that 
we've been spending a whole lot of money upgrading the system, including the plan, including the pumping stations that you see around the city, those little brick houses that, like, everybody wonders what they are. Those are pumping stations to move water mm-hmm. through the system um, and, uh, and to separate out the water and wastewater connection so that so all the sewage goes directly to the plant and the waste and the stormwater goes out into the ocean and never the twain shall meet. Well, it costs, as you know, it costs... It costs a lot of money, as you might suspect. It costs a lot of money to do that. You basically are digging up the entire city, or at least large portions of it, to make that happen. So uh, we've been steadily plugging away at that, and the good news is that the city has removed, through the city's efforts uh, in separating out the system and upgrading the plant, the city, over time, over many mayoral administrations, has removed about more than 90% of the nitrogen that discharges into the into buzzards wow, bay it's a huge improvement uh epa says well that's good but not quite good enough you want we want you to go <laughs> from whatever it is now 93 to 97 percent and that's going to cost well hundreds of millions of dollars to do that right so we could spend the whole hour talking about whether that's good public policy or not and how that's that's all done but that's that's what we do so what happens is in answer to your question when there there is a big rain event the stormwater will, uh, will overflow and it'll combine with the sewer uh, that's that's trapped in the system in the un- unseparated areas of the system and push out su- untreated sewage into, especially into Clark's Cove. So when that happens, the bacterial counts go up and in, in the receiving waters and the beaches will end up being closed because we test every, uh, there's testing being done by our health department all the time of the water quality uh, as well as the Department of Environmental Protection. So when it hits a certain level, the beaches have to be shut down until the testing, until the until the waters pass the test, right, which usually takes, you know, a day or two or so for that to happen. So that's what happens. So sorry for the long explanation because I think that's something that a lot of people ask, so I give you a long explanation. As far as the... You know your question about the about the closures when there weren't rain events. I don't recall that happening. There may have been a rain event like a couple of days before, and the bacterial counts took a little bit of time to spike up and prompt to prompt the shutdown of the beach. But I I, I don't know in particular why that might have happened. I call her. I'm going to just hold you there just because phone lines a, have lit That up. was a long explanation, Tim, but well, for, we, to a very short question. But I just think people want it. So the city spends a lot of dough on this stuff. And has for a long time, and uh, I just think it's important for people to understand it because it's, you know, unless you do this, you're involved in these things. It's, it's probably not something you pay much attention to. Sure, just, you just see your water and wastewater rates go up and wonder what's going on. Yeah, you know, it goes down the drain, and then you wonder why the bill goes up. Yeah. So uh, we do have to take a break, though. So callers, hang on. We will get to you when we come back. More with Mayor Mitchell in just a few moments. Come back. We have a few moments left with Mayor Mitchell. Uh, I do have to take one more break in the uh, last ten minutes here. You got so a ton just, of calls. I want to warn sorry. everybody this, that this phone's going to start smoking now too. Yeah, we're going to melt these phone lines. Let's go right back to them. Good morning. You were on with Mayor Mitchell. Hello. How's it going? What's going on, John? Hello. What's on your mind? Hey, Mitchell. How you doing? Not bad. Uh, How's quick, things? Um, good, good. So quick, uh, quickly. Yep. Um, I know that there's a residency requirement for the New Bedford Police, and uh, I was curious to find out if there was any plans in store for the future to get the staffing levels up to um, kind of get rid of that residency requirement and, and possibly that 10% pay, pay deduction. 
Well, that does the pay deduction doesn't apply to um, the unionized employees in the city. That's uh, that's that's their 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 residency is governed by the collective bargaining agreement. But um, on, but they do. There is a residency requirement, as you know, a ten year residency requirement for the police. You know, we're in the middle of contract negotiations with them right now, and I can I can say that that's been a part of the discussion, and so. Uh, yeah, no, it's a it's a fair question, and what I can say is that is definitely something being considered, but it's being considered in the context of the negotiations that have been going on for some time right now. All right, good enough. Right. Appreciate it. Thank you for the call. Uh, good morning. You were on next with Mayor Mitchell. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, uh, Mayor Mitchell, you're talking about the wastewater. I I know from listening to WBSM. There had been a grant that was available to the city that it seems we didn't apply for for some reason that would help with the cost of uh, uh, the increase in the water rates next year. Can you tell me uh, what are we looking at an increase in uh, water rates? Is it going to double, triple, quadruple? Or uh, is there any chance there can be a last-minute grant that can help us with this? Uh, Yeah, you know, uh, i got to tell you, I mean, I... I'm trying not to pick fights with the city council. I'm really, really trying, Tim. Uh, but as I think yeah, this really, this was partially reported. Um, we, so we're under, we're under a federal consent decree, which is a court order, uh, along with a related uh, administrative order by the Environmental Protection Agency to continue the work of separating out our stormwater and wastewater systems, right? And there's other related projects that we have to do. I mentioned pumping stations. There are upgrades to the plant and all that. So under – so this is uh, – I'm going to get to answer your question, but I just okay. – uh, with this stuff, I just uh, – Remember, it's close to the end of lightning around here. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, fair, enough, fair enough. I'll try to get to okay. it. So, so, um, so when we do these projects, there's something called the State Revolving Fund, the SRF. And the SRF is a mechanism in which when we go out to borrow money to do these projects, the, the, the state is, we were able to borrow under the, under essentially the state program that allows for a, a lower interest rate. The state backs up the bonds. And the SRF sometimes allows for principal, uh, relief as well. So if you go out and borrow a hundred million dollars, the state will will uh, relieve could relieve some of that funds uh, that that principal if the state has funds right now with all the federal uh, money out there for uh, water and wastewater projects especially water projects um, the SRF program the state has a fair amount of money mm-hmm. the problem we have is we cannot apply for an SRF any SRF relief uh, until the loan is authorized by the loan the borrowing by bonds is authorized by the city council mm-hmm. and in the last go around or two go arounds before i guess uh the city council didn't act on it they they um they did they refused to move forward with um you know, with the borrowing they felt like well it's going to cause rates to go up and the answer is yeah it will but guess what that's not our doing that's that's the that's the EPA and it's, and we can have a whole discussion about uh, federal policy with wastewater, but we ended up because the city council did not authorize the borrowing, we missed a grant deadline. 
How many millions of dollars did that cost the city? I don't know. I think it's fair to say it did cost in the millions, in the single millions. I thought I heard something about a late application. Is that possible? It was It was late. It was late. No, and but I mean putting in one now and getting it through. No, no chance. For last, So we can move forward on the projects. What I'm saying is, you know, we're moving forward. The projects are going to be moving forward no matter what. Yes. It would have been better to have started some of these projects before when the interest rates were lower. Mm-hmm for one thing. Yep. Um, and so now, like the next deadline, and people should keep an eye on us, the next deadline is June 30th. Uh, okay. And so this is coming up again. So, so let's hope they get to it and uh, you guys can, and you have to sign it once they once they may pass this thing. Yeah, it okay. just comes right upstairs and I sign it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what If this doesn't get through, what do you see the weight increase being? Double of what it is now? Triple? Quadruple? It's, it's, it's going up. So uh, no, it's not going to be. No, it's not going to be like that. But uh, it's it's going up steadily, and the reason is that these are all new projects, and you've got we're contending with inflation there as we are everywhere else. And uh, but it's the federal government's making us do more well, than I, we. I, I understand yeah. that. I understand. That. I got. I got to hold okay, in I there. I understand the computer's going to kick in. Yeah, well, we got to take our final break. Sorry. Have a good one. Bye bye. And, uh, yeah, we will take our final break. If, uh, if we have time to take more calls when we come back, we will. Uh, before we take that break, though, I want to tell you about something that I think a lot of people are probably opening their windows. Today's a little chilly. You said today when you came in is a little bit chilly. Yes. Uh, but, you know, today is just one of the days of the spring. We're going to have a lot of nice days here. You're going to want to open up your windows. You're going to find those rip screens. You're going to find that the screen door isn't working like it should. All of those things that are happening, you can call Precision Window and Kitchen. They can come out and they can take care of all of those jobs. They've been doing it for over 35 years, so they've seen it all. No job is too big, but no job is too small. They're going to do the small jobs that the other guys just won't do. So they will fix a rip screen. They will fix a busted pane of glass instead of having to replace your entire window. And they'll come They'll get the part that needs to be fixed. They'll bring it back to the shop. They'll fix it. They'll bring it back to your house. They'll install it. So you don't have to worry like I do that you're going to go get this nice repaired screen and then you're going to put your fist through it accidentally when you're trying to put it in. They'll take care of all of that for you. You can find out more at precisionwindowandkitchen.com. That's precisionwindowandkitchen.com. Um. 